Welcome one and all to From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii with me, Jeremy Walker, in which we're working together through the sermons of the Victorian pastor-preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We read through those sermons each week. Uh, This week we're reading from Sermon 66 to Sermon 72 in the New Park Street pulpit, the second volume. If one a day is too much, you can always always read one a week. And that's the particular sermon that we are looking at today. Now, in the collection, it's actually numbered 66 and 67, and it's entitled The Resurrection of the Dead. And it was preached on February the 17th, a Sunday morning, 1856, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark. Spurgeon's double sermons, the ones that have uh, two numbers with them, are typically slightly longer or contain something extra. In this case, I think it's both. It's a slightly longer sermon and it also has an exposition attached at the end. Spurgeon's text on this occasion is Acts chapter 24 and verse 15. There shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Now, Spurgeon, as you'll know if you've read anything of him, or if you've listened to any of these podcasts before, is very much taken up with the the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a, a real Calvary preacher in the best sense of that word. While he knows that the gospel is is broader and wider, richer and higher than simply the, the fact of the crucifixion, it is nevertheless true that it is the cross of Christ, Christ and him crucified, to which he often and eagerly returns. But as we're seeing now in this sermon, Spurgeon is no narrow pulpiteer. He is remarking in this sermon that the apostles did not take a single text or confine themselves to one subject, much less to any place of worship, but they tended to declare from the fullness of their heart what they knew of Jesus Christ. And central in that declaration was the resurrection of the dead. Spurgeon's point is that apostolic preaching tends to range reasonably far and wide over the uh, the biblical data, the text of the Old Testament, as they speak forth the truth concerning Jesus Christ, and they always ensure that they make clear the resurrection of the dead. He says the apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the consequent resurrection of the dead. It appears that the Alpha and the Omega, that's the beginning and the end of their gospel, was the testimony that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. Why is this significant for Spurgeon? It's because he's been thinking about the contrast between the churches of his own day and the churches of the apostolic time and he's suggesting that um, this absence may be one of the reasons why the church today is lacking something that the church in the apostolic period possessed and perhaps that's worth asking of ourselves as well. How much, how often, how regularly, how confidently do we hear the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ preached in the pulpit? Now, 
Spurgeon suggests that there are very few Christians who believe the resurrection of the dead. He says immediately afterwards, you may be surprised to hear that, but I should not wonder if I discover that you yourself have doubts on the subject. I suspect that many preachers today, many pastors today, would suggest more or less the same thing, that while there may often be some lip service to the idea of resurrection, actually very few believers really understand what that means, and not all of them then have the confident joy with regard to that truth that is their birthright as children of heaven. And so Spurgeon wants us to remember that if we really are Christians, we would believe that every mortal man who ever existed shall not only live by the immortality of his soul, but his body shall live again, that the very flesh in which he now walks the earth is as eternal as the soul and shall exist forever. This is the reality that Spurgeon then wants us to grasp that not only do we have a soul that never dies, but that our body will one day be joined again with our soul and that uh, this is the reality of the resurrection. And he's going to divide it simply along two lines, his consideration, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. And he's stating that this is so and then unpacking the truth. So first of all, there shall be a resurrection of the just. And he's offering proofs of this to demonstrate its verity and validity, the, the truth of the matter. And the first one he offers is that it has been the constant and unvarying faith of the saints from the earliest periods of time. And again, what's sometimes striking about these longer sermons is that Spurgeon often will uh, refer to a battery of biblical texts and it's one of the things that in the best sense bulks up these sermons that he brings scripture after scripture to bear upon the question and so here he's in Hebrews chapter 11 he's in Job chapter 19 He's uh, quoting from Daniel. He's in Isaiah chapter 26. He's in Hosea chapter 6. He's uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35 this time. He's emphasizing that all the way through the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, and then on through the, uh, the post-apostolic period, it is clear that God's people believe in the resurrection from the dead. Holy Scripture, he says, is so full of this doctrine that I marvel, brethren, that we should so soon have departed from the steadfastness of our faith, and that it should be believed in many churches that the actual bodies of the saints will not live again, and especially that the bodies of the wicked will not have a future existence. But he's maintaining with the text, there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. A second proof he offers, is the translation of Enoch and Elijah to heaven. These two men were taken bodily into the presence of God. Enoch was not, for God took him. Elijah was carried bodily to heaven in a chariot of fire. And he's simply pointing out that this is the, the reality that those men have enjoyed and that uh, therefore it communicates to us the reality of a bodily expectation. 
He then picks up a third example, the uh, Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil about the body of Moses and identifies this great doctrine of angels watching over the bones of the saints, emphasizing the importance to God and to God's servants of the body of his people, not just the soul. He moves on. The resurrections that have already taken place give us hope and confidence that there shall be a resurrection of all saints. When Jesus rose from the dead, many of the saints also arose and came into the city. We read in John's Gospel about Lazarus, who had been dead three days and came from the grave at the word of Jesus. There's the daughter of Jairus, whom the Lord raised from the dead, as he did the widow of Nain's son. There was Dorcas, whom Peter was employed by God to call back from the dead. There was Eutychus, who fell out of the window and was raised again at the prayer of Paul. You can go back to the Old Testament. You've got Elijah stretching himself upon the dead child, and the child's soul came to him again. You've got the record of the the man who was thrown into the prophet's tomb and touched the prophet's bones and rose to life again. And each of these examples is an assurance to God's people that God is able to raise from the dead. And it's a testimony of what he will one day do. Now, he refers once more to the Holy Spirit by way of confirming the doctrine that the saints' bodies shall rise again. He's he's coming back now and searching out other portions of Scripture. The body then is the Lord's. Why does he say that? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13 tells us that the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, Christ died to save all of us, all that we are, body and soul. He has not come just to save our souls and to abandon our bodies because we are one person. And this body-soul entity is the whole of me, and the whole of me is saved by Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross and rises again from the grave. Yes, the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And then there's a, a third and master argument. Christ rose from the dead. It's as simple as that. And if Christ rose from the dead, then we too must rise. If he rose, then we who belong to him must rise with him and like him. Now, uh, Spurgeon is just emphasizing then from these various different strands of scriptural evidence, the reality of a bodily resurrection, the fact that it is a credible and and, uh, a promised certainty for God's people. Now, what difference does it make that there is a resurrection from the dead for the just, for the people of God? What thoughts of comfort there are in this doctrine, says Spurgeon, that the dead shall rise again. And he's talking in a context where people that he has known and loved have already been called home. And he says there's a comfort because we know that this very body, the one that lies cold, dead and clay-like in the grave, this is the very body that will rise again and there will be personality and activity that makes us to recognise these who have died. 
And there's comfort too, poor sufferers who suffer in our bodies. When we are uh, martyrs with aches of one kind and another, when we feel the pressure and the pain of life in a fallen world in our humanity, we know that this is not the end and that this body will not go on in its present state, that we will have a resurrection body. We shall truly live. There's a word of instruction concerning the doctrine of recognition, the fact that we will actually know one another in the glory which is to come, drawn from the fact that uh, the, uh, the people who have gone before are already recognisable. And there's a lovely little story about the, uh, the wife of the particular Baptist preacher, John Ryland, who asked him, do you think you'll know me in heaven? And Ryland replied, why, I know you here. And do you think I shall be a bigger fool in heaven than I am on earth? Also a word of warning. If your bodies are to dwell in heaven, I beseech you take care of them. I do not mean take care of what you eat and drink and wherewithal you shall be clothed, but I mean take care that you do not let your bodies be polluted by sin. Now, Spurgeon is reminding us that the assurance that God will raise us from the dead and give us a glorious body like that of Jesus Christ is not then an excuse to abuse or pollute our bodies here, that we ought to take care of it as the temple of the Holy Ghost and as a member of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you believe this doctrine or not? That's his closing challenge. If you will not, you are excommunicate from the faith. This is the faith of the gospel, and if you do not believe it, you have not yet received the gospel. For if the dead rise not, then your faith is vain or empty, and ye are yet in your sins." The dead in Christ shall rise, and they shall rise first. Now, are you persuaded of the centrality and certainty of the resurrection from the dead? Spurgeon says if you deny this, you actually have no hope, because a, a crucified and not risen Saviour is no Saviour at all. Our faith hangs upon the fact that Christ died for our sins and rose again for our justification and the hope that we then have. And so he comes to the resurrection of the wicked. And this, he says, is a point of controversy and he's going to have to speak some hard things. I may detain you long, he says, but I beg you, nevertheless, hearken to me, listen carefully, heed what I have to say. And he follows a similar pattern. He begins with biblical proofs. The second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5 and verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. <clears throat> Since the body sins, it is only natural, he says, that the body should be punished. He's reminding us that there is a general judgment. But this is not the only text to prove the doctrine. He has a better. Matthew 5.29 If your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. Notice, he says, not your whole soul, but your whole body. That your 
whole humanity will suffer the punishment that your sins deserve and therefore it's better to have by way of contrast a temporary physical impairment rather than a permanent physical punishment and there's another the same gospel matthew chapter 10 verse 28 do not be afraid of those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell and his emphasis again is that there is a real fire in hell as truly as you have now a real body a fire exactly like that which we have on earth in everything except this that it will not consume though it will torture you now I think Spurgeon has to be a little bit careful here because it's at least possible that the flame in Scripture is on one level metaphorical, but I think it's worth considering that the symbols of spiritual realities indicate something that is far more real and substantial than the symbol itself. And so it, though it may not be a real fire, it is nevertheless something that is communicated by the idea of fire. It is a fiery judgment. And in that sense, he's, he's correct in calling it a real fire which does not consume but ever burns. It's a, it's a fearful image and you can feel in Spurgeon's language the weight of, of his distress and grief as he considers what lies ahead for the ungodly. He, he also, perhaps uh, overreaching himself poetically a little bit, every nerve in hell, he says, will be a string on which the devil shall ever play his diabolical tune of hell's unutterable lament. Now, if we're being picky, then we might want to say, Mr Spurgeon, you, you do remember, don't you, that, that hell is not the devil's place in the sense that he does not reign there that hell is as much the place of God's dominion as is heaven but in hell it is God's unmediated presence his wrath poured out against sin without anything to protect us and that therefore it is a place in which the devil himself is punished together with his angels and those who have followed his way and remain under his rule, his spiritual dominion. And in that sense, we need to be careful that we don't suggest that the devil reigns in hell as God reigns in heaven in the same way uh, that those things are not uh, parallel. And yet, while we're picking holes in some of his precise theology, nevertheless, the imagery that he uses is most potent, most forceful. And now he's going to bring the applications. Some of you, he says, are very proud of your attractive bodies and you, you clothe yourselves and you uh, put on your, your ornaments, your jewellery. And he says, why is it that you're so concerned about a body that is going to be consumed? Why are you so taken up with your body and you've got no regard for its eternity and the value of your body and your soul? Again, he asks those who are gratifying their lusts, who are indulging their sinful appetites. Don't you realise that those bodies will be in hell and that you will have the same lusts in hell that you have here, that you will be 
as much a sinner there as you are on earth. And then again, oh, poor sinner. And, and understand that there's no gloating here. There's no uh, smug satisfaction that you wretched people, you're going to be cast down into the pit. No, he's groaning and he's pleading. These are, are warnings, reasons to turn from sin. Poor sinner, if I saw thee going into the inquisitor's den to be tormented, would I not beg of thee to stop ere thou shouldst put thy foot upon the threshold? If I, if I thought you were going to be tortured, wouldn't I throw myself between you? And so Spurgeon says, and here's a telling way of describing it. If I were standing on a stage this morning and were acting these things as fancies, I would make you weep. I would make the godly weep to think that so many should be damned. And I would make the ungodly weep to think that they should be damned. So he's saying I could, I could play act this and I could move you to tears. But here's the, the horror. When I speak of realities, they do not move you half as much as fictions would. And you sit just as you did before the service had commenced. But hear me while I again affirm God's truth. His point is that I could just perform this and you might be moved. But when I preach this, you seem to be utterly resistant. You have no regard for what I'm saying. And so you, you hear him now pouring himself out. What will you do in that day when you stand before your maker? It's a little thing to have your minister upbraid you now. It's a small thing to be judged of man's judgment. What will you do when God shall thunder out, not your accusation, but your condemnation? Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He says, you will see the hellfire preacher one day in heaven perhaps and you yourselves cast out. He's saying remember the fearful future reality of judgment, of the damnation of the wicked and the exaltation and comfort of the righteous. You despise Christ now, yes, but you will not despise Christ then. You can waste your Sabbaths now, but then you would give a thousand worlds for a Sabbath if you could but have it in hell. Yes, you scoff and jeer here, but not then. Oh, my hearers, he cries out. What a conclusion. Oh, my hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. Who among you can dwell with devouring fire? Who among you can dwell with everlasting burnings? Can you, sir, imagine the preacher pointing his finger with tears in his eyes. Can you, can you abide the flame forever? Oh, no, sayest thou, what can I do to be saved? Hear thou what Christ hath to say. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You can imagine him collapsing at the end of such a sermon. There is no play acting here. This is a man who knows that every one of his hearers, first of all in their souls and then at the great resurrection of the just and the unjust body and soul, must either be in the perfect presence of God and all the pleasures of glory forever and forever, or must be cast body and soul into the fiery pit. And his 
His whole being, body and soul, is taken up with this reality and setting it forth and pressing it home and demonstrating its truth and pleading with men and women and boys and girls to take account of the blessings of being resurrected as a just man or the horrors of being brought back only to be condemned forever. Now, is that the kind of preaching that we hear in these days? I think if Spurgeon could walk into any number of so-called evangelical churches today, he would go right back to the beginning of his sermon and he'd say, you know why you, you, you're in the state you're in, don't you? You know why you're in the condition that you are as Christians and as churches. Do you even believe the gospel? Have you faced the fact that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust? His brief exposition of 1 Corinthians 15, recorded at the end of this sermon, takes us through the the testimony of the Apostle Paul and strikes some of these keynotes. He's reminding us of the realities once more. Is this what we hear in our pulpits and from our pulpits? Is this what we hear spoken and preached on the streets and, and at the doors? If we're preachers, how faithful have we been in making known the whole counsel of God in this particular regard? Are we preaching a Christ who was crucified and who rose again from the dead? Are we preaching a hope that cannot be taken away? Are we preaching a confidence and a comfort that belongs to every one of God's true people? Are we reminding the men and women who hear us as God's children that soon all the sorrows and the sighs and the sufferings of this world must pass away and that we shall stand in the presence of God and that we shall enter a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells with bodies as well as souls reunited and constituted for the glories and beauties and blessings of the world which is to come. And that by way of contrast, that if we are living as rebels against God, if we have no faith in him, no regard for him, that though here we may scoff and despise the gospel, here we may uh, label the, the hellfire preacher, the, the brimstone minister, yet nevertheless, without Jesus Christ, we shall suffer body and soul in hell with the devil and his angels for all eternity. These then are notes that need to be sounded once more. Praise God for the faithfulness of of a Charles Spurgeon. Praise God for the faithfulness of those who've gone before him and those who've come after him in making known that there is a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.